Welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we bring to you recordings from the audio archives. In the seventh instalment of tapes focusing on the Maybrick Diary, we bring to you Shirley Harrison at a meeting of the Cloak and Dagger Club from the 8th of August, 1998. Shirley Harrison, and also has great pleasure in saying hello to Sally's associate, Sally Evermee. <laughs> and Shirley's literary agent, Doreen Montgomery. <laughs> now, as most of you will... Well, well, Robert was here last time. <laughs> um, as most of you well know, Shirley is the author of the diary of Jack the Ripper. Um, first published in hardback in 1993, the book became an international bestseller. Uh, the paperback came out in 1994, and in October we had the third update uh, and revision published by Blake. So tonight we explore whether Shirley Harrison actually uh, believes with the same conviction and passion as Paul Feldman believes that this diary is actually the diary of Jack the Ripper or is Shirley perhaps uh, part of a seedy conspiracy yes. <laughs> which seeks to promote a fraudulent document for commercial interests. You'll have your own view about that, um, and hopefully you'll be that. Um, many of you will want to ask Shirley, why does she reject the Ripper experts who say to her, Shirley, girl, take it from us, this diary is a load of modern twaddle. Um, many of you will want to ask Shirley, why does she uh, reject Mike Barrett's claim that he forged the diary? We have a five-page document from Michael Barrett describing exactly how he did it. Why is this ignored? Well, is the simple answer to all of these questions money? We'll find out. <laughs> Surely, six months of uh, controversy. Has it made you a wealthy woman? Oh, I wish. <laughs> this actually has, be has become a very irritating question. I do understand why people ask it, but I think... Have I got this close enough? Yeah, just... It's all right, isn't it? Have I got it? Have I? In a year? Okay? Uh, right at the beginning, there was this accusation that I had made a fortune out of the diary because it was a bestseller, which indeed it was in the first few, first year. 
Um, I, I suspect that part of the problem is that most of the people who make that accusation are not aware of the mechanics of publishing. I don't know how many of you have actually published books. Probably not that many. Um, and I would say to anybody, in any case, uh, what are we doing but hoping? What is any writer doing but hoping to make a living out of what they do? I would have been stupid if I'd gone into this not hoping to make some money out of it. So the facts are, if we, if we take it fact by fact, when I'm going, I'm going to try and be honest with you about this. It's, it's a little difficult because we're treading on difficult areas of finance, but I want to try and tell you exactly what happened. I had an advance from Smith Griffin, from Robert Smith, which was originally £15,000. Now that £15,000 was divided between Michael Barrett and me. It was an advance against royalties, which meant that every penny that I, I had had to be earned before I got any of it. Um, so I had to start with, to do my research, about £7,000, which is a lot of money by many people's standards when they're doing a book. You take off that various commissions, you take off that legal fees for which um, author is 80% responsible, and believe you me, the legal fees on this project have been horrendous, partly because of the Sunday Times. Uh, you take off, say, a thousand pounds for a handwriting expert. You take off several thousand pounds for uh, analysis of the ink and the paper, that sort of thing. At the end of the day, you're not left with much to live on. So that original large sum of money which came in after the book was published, would have done, it was good, and I'm not grumbling. I had a wonderful first year. I went to America on it. Um, I was invited out there by the American publishers. I had a great time. But I didn't make a fortune, and over the last five years that this has been going on, obviously, that has diminished. And it's now still bringing in some money, but it's not, certainly not bringing in a fortune, and I do have to live, believe it or not. I also think that if it were not for you out there, uh, this book would not have sold. Um, publishers actually, they might at the beginning see, have an eye to a main chance, they might realize his good hot commercial property. But after a time, the thing that keeps it going is your interest. And the fact that you're all here tonight, the fact that Paul Fabe has come armed with questions from people on the internet who want to know what I've got to say, is not down to us. That's down to the fact that this diary is extraordinary. And it is unique, and there's nothing quite like it. Um, and before Keith goes on to the next question, I want to ask you all, please, if you've come with a preconceived idea that the diary is first a modern forgery, and if it's not a modern forgery, that it is probably an old forgery, but mostly if it is a modern forgery, I would ask you, put that aside for a moment. I will try to answer your questions honestly, and I will try to be fair about it. There is no way that this could be a modern forgery. And once you've got rid of that idea, then you're into a whole realm of different interests and, um, and fascination. And my job, I'm a, I'm a journalist for heaven's sake, I'm a writer. I was curious. It wasn't money that ever motivated any of us. 
And far from making money, in fact, several of us have actually lost a lot of money on it. So that, I think, I hope, will answer. But if you want to ask me any more about that, then come that's fine. Can I say it's a great issue that comes out of print? It hasn't been available for some time. It isn't out of print. It's never been out of print. There's a new edition coming out on October 1st. There might be a new edition on October 1st, but the current edition is out of print. Well, I don't know. No, no, it's available in Smith's and any major bookstore. I'm not a bookshop and I cannot get copies from the strip. Go to Smith's. Does that mean that you experience a demand for the book? Yes, people are all asking for it, and I'm having to say you can't get it. It's not available until the new edition comes out. And you actually, you actually did establish that it was out of print. They told you the book yes. is out of print. Who told you that? I think it's just Oh, well, they are wrong. They are wrong. Well, you will know who you phoned up to inquire about. Well, I can find that out on the Yeah, okay. Can. All right. All right. Um, let's go back to, um, to Shirley. And thank you for that very honest um, uh, exposition of the financial side of this. I mentioned also about a CD conspiracy. And I suppose really the, the main question is, why am I talking about CD conspiracies? Why do you have to sit there and justify and explain the amount of money that you've earned? What has this got to do with the investigation into the origins of the diary? Um, so how has all this come about? I... I think the diary was probably a challenge in the first instance. I suspect that um, the fact that it did actually um, confront all the other theories that had come about regarding the Ripper did actually unsettle people at the beginning. And it was, I mean, I admit it, the provenance of this diary in that first year um, was appalling. And we had a real task ahead of us. I didn't know which way it was going to go. When I when I first saw the diary, when it was put onto Doreen's desk, we we were all very worried about it. Um, we have continued on and off to be concerned. But the fact that we were accused of a, of a, a seedy conspiracy was really down to a very small sequence of events which is explained in, in I hope, much more clearly in the new edition, um, which culminated in the Sunday Times, huge headlines, fake, uh, which were based on absolutely minimal research. They were totally unfair. They, um, their judgments of what was in the diary was done on absolutely really no information at all. And it was a typical journalistic exercise, partly because of the Hitler Diaries, we suspect, because the Sunday Times didn't. And they made a mess of things with the Hitler Diaries, and they were not very happy about this one. Um, all right, let's go back to the beginning then, because you come from a journalistic background yourself, so you yes. recognize a fellow journalist at Long, work. I, my beginning wasn't journalism. I actually began, and I'm almost ashamed to say this, I worked on Children's Hour when I was still at school, and Uncle Mac was in charge. That makes me. How did you get involved with this project, with the diary? 
Well, I've been with Doreen. Uh, Doreen's been my agent now since, well, I've been about 20, 25 years. Um, I was a journalist doing feature work for National Summer Magazines, just plodding along. I, my husband died, um, and I turned to writing books. And I wrote books that never made me, really didn't make me a penny, but I loved what I was writing. Because what I do all the time is pick up things that I find fascinating and try to try to worry them until I've got the answer or they've been able to present them in a way that interests people. And it was just fluke. Michael Barrett rang Doreen because he'd been told by a publisher that she was the agent to go to. And she called me up to London and I went and met him um, and she asked me if I, if I would handle this. Now, I would challenge any one of you, if you'd been given that opportunity, if you'd had this diary sitting on your desk, would you have said no? What were your early feelings about it? I was worried about it. We were all worried about it. Tell us about Michael Barrett then. Okay. <laughs> How long have we got? Uh, Michael Barrett is a very sad story. Um, I don't think there's any two ways about that. And no one has invested more time and motherly care and devotion to looking after Michael Barrett than Doreen here, my agent. Um, when he first came, he was a scrap metal merchant. Um, he's had a very chequered history um, from Liverpool. I think we all, all know that side of the background. By the time he brought the diary to us, we didn't know it. But he was already drinking, and his marriage was already in a parlous state. How long did he been married? He'd been married 16 years, 17 years. Children? One little girl called Caroline, who was the apple of his eye. And when we first met him, all he wanted, he said, was a greenhouse, and he wanted to look after Caroline. And that was what he was hoping for. Now, we, I mean, we've since learned that Michael Barrett is unfortunately... He, he does not tell the truth. Um, and he romances. He's a ball committee character. Um, but it has taken quite a long time to get to the heart of that side of his story. The immediate question, obviously, is where did Michael Barrett get the diary from? Mm -hmm. Well, he told us that he got it from his friend Tony Devereux in the pub, The Saddle in Liverpool. Um, but Tony Devereux, he was dying, and in fact he died conveniently, everybody might say, not long afterwards. Um, Tell us about Tony Devereux. Tony Devereux was a print worker from the Liverpool Echo, an uneducated man with not a particularly uh, wide interest in anything at all, drank a bit too much, and Michael Barrett used to bring him a bottle of sherry every day. Had he known him long? Not a great deal of time, no. Not a close friend? Not a close friend. According to the people at the pub, and uh, Sally and I have been back to the saddle now and talked to the landlord, talked to, to, talk to their, their friends, and I would also say this, that all of those who attack us about what happened, um, there's almost nobody has actually met Michael, Anne, or any of the people who were involved in this story at the beginning. We've met them all. We've spent a lot of time talking to them. Uh, the people in the pub said Tony Devereux was a bit of a loner. Mike wasn't very popular. Uh, the general feeling was a bit of surprise that Tony Devereux would ever have given Mike the diary. Well, Mike presumably asked Tony, why are you giving me this? Yeah. And what did Tony say? Um, my memory of that, now I'm there, I've got to think of the quote. What, was, what, what did he say? Do you remember the piece? Well, I wasn't there. That's no, I know you weren't. I have to do this piece. I've got to bring that. saying, uh, go away and do something. Do, go away and do something with it. I've got brain overload, so I have to keep there as my sort of 
um, my back stock. He can even put in the back. So yes. go away and do something with it. Was what he said. Um, but he would never explain to Mike where he got it from no, no. and the reason why he was giving it to him. No, it was all totally unsatisfactory. And Mike, because he is obsessional, and he still is, I mean now he's gone completely really round the bend, but he, is, he was obsessional, um, he got completely hooked on the diary. He's got a funny side to him, Michael Barrett, this Walter Mitty thing, that he does actually like looking at books, he does like reading, um, nothing serious, but he's a great prober and a great sort of gatherer of information, which he then gets completely wrong. He puts it into the wrong context, tells the wrong stories about it, he gets it mishmashed all over the place. But he did want desperately to be the man who found the answer to Jack the Ripper. And this was really what was driving him at that time. He really, really wanted it to be like that. He wanted his moment of fame. We're told by you and by Mike that he hounded Tony Devereux day and night mm -hmm. to explain where he got it uh, from. Um, how long did Mike have the diary before Tony died, leaving Mike with a diary and unexplained provenance? Uh, my memory, prompts me, um, is only a few months. Tony died, I think, in the autumn. Um, Mike got it in the early part of the year, so it was a very short time. May to August. May to, May to August. May to August. So uh, Mike Barrett took possession of the diary from Tony Devereux in May 1991. Um, we know that Mike Barrett went away on holiday with his family in July 1991. When he came back, Tony Devereux was dead. Within those, what, ten weeks, um, how much work did Mike do on trying to establish the origins of the diary, what the diary was about, who had written it? He did an enormous amount of work, um, and we have his research notes, which are the research notes of somebody who is trying to find out. They're not the research notes of somebody who is forging a diary. Um, they're notes that are scattered with questions, haven't found the answer yet, don't know quite what this is, don't know where this is going, all this sort of thing. He did do quite a lot of work. Did he establish the, I, the diary's identity, yes. the writer's identity, before he went away on holiday? Um, yes. He told you that? This was this, this he, he established the identity of who, who wrote the diary, apparently, by reading a book by Richard Whittington Egan, who most of you probably know of, called Liverpool Mayhem, Murder and Mystery, in which the story of Florence Maybrick and James Maybrick and Battle Priest House was told, and Battle Priest House was mentioned. And suddenly, for Mike, there was this flash, this blinding flash, because the name of Battle Priest turns up in that story, and he realized that what, what we had was a journal which was saying, I have been written by James Maywood. According to Mike, he did months of research, buying every Jack the Ripper book that he could find. He could not crack the identity of the, uh, uh, the diarist until he read Richard Whittington Egan's book. This book, Tales of Liverpool, um, that's not Mike's book, of course. Um, there is nothing in here about Jack the Ripper. I don't know why he read this. There is a story in here, two chapters about Florence Maybrick. Um, so, but this is the book which gave Mike his key into 
the identity of James Maybrick as Jack the Ripper. Um, and you say that he discovered this before Tony went away on holiday, therefore he must have shared it with Tony. Well, I suspect he did, yes. Mm. Yes. But didn't tell you about it? No. No. Okay, I find that... I. I find that a little bit curious. I have to say, it, it intrigues me because that book is both, as far as I'm concerned, it's both a lifeline and it's both a lead weight uh, for you. The book actually was found in Tony Devereux's possession, uh, uh, in his, in his uh, possessions uh, after he had uh, died. In a sense, that gives a link between Michael Barrett and Tony Devereux. It shows that Presumably, that was the book that he made his breakthrough with, and he chose to share that enormous breakthrough with Tony Devereux. In Mike's words, you could have scraped me off the ceiling. Um, I just find the conflict here because Mike told us, and he's told several people, that Tony died before he established the identity of James Maybrick. There is a conflict uh, here. He did months of research after Tony's death, and then he made the discovery. Um, so a conflict which is yet to be uh, resolved. Mm -hmm. I d I'm not too bothered about that, because I think that, first of all, we're talking about a long time ago. I think Mike's memory was anyway wobbly. I think Mike might have said anything at all. It was totally natural that he had that book. Um, everything, most people in Liverpool had that book. Do they? Oh yes, it's a, it's a, it's a standard. People who are interested in Liverpool live in Liverpool have got that book. In their house? Yes. Have they? I don't, see I don't know. Problem. I haven't been in everyone's it's house a, in Liverpool, so I don't a, know. It's a popular book. Yeah. Um, where, doesn't. Did, where did Mike, well, did Mike have it in his well, house? Well, Mike told me that he got it in W.H. Smith's. So he went into W.H. Smith's after reading every book on the river and then read that book and made the connection. Yes, okay, that's what I, I was led to understand. There may be variations in the story which are a bit difficult to pin down. It's this, the time so which intrigues me. Ten yes. weeks, a lot happens in that ten weeks. Um, anyway, let's move on uh, from it. But before I move on, the family actually, Tony Devereux's family, say that he, Tony Devereux, would never have given Mike this valuable object. They say, no, he was not his best friend. How do you meet this? Are the family wrong about their father? No, I, it would appear now that uh, since Anne's confession, this is Anne Graham, um, Mike's wife, um, that they are right. Um, if we believe Anne's story, and I don't know how many of you at the moment are familiar with what Anne Graham confessed before this, the paperback came out, but Anne Graham, as she is now called Graham, um, she was then Barrett, Anne Barrett, uh, told and um, did a taped confession that in fact she had given the diary to Tony Devereux um, and that it had been in her family for many, many years. In fact, since 1942, I think it was. Um, the reason for her doing this was that Mike, before he came to London, was driving her around the bend. She desperately wanted to feel proud of him again. Um, she wanted him to have something to do. She had had this diary lurking around for a long time. It had been in her father's possession in the bottom of the trunk in the house in Liverpool. Nobody was interested in it because 
I mean, I, this is actually genuine. People in Liverpool aren't particularly interested in Jack the Ripper. It just isn't something that grabs them. And it had been lurking there underneath a pile of other stuff about the First World War. Um, when her father died, she got the diary, or he, he gave it to her just before he died, and she'd hidden it in the house. And then, in desperation, she gave it to Michael. Um, Michael was absolutely shattered by the fact that she had deceived him as indeed we all were. I mean, we can come on to that in a minute. It was absolutely astonishing. But it does answer the fact that the Devereux family say that no way would their father have had that diary, because in fact, if Anne's story is correct, he didn't. He had it for less than 24 hours. She gave it to him, he gave it to Mike. We can prove this a little bit uh, later because a lot of people will be sitting out there, standing out there, thinking, come on, this makes no sense at all. A woman, did, how well did she know Tony Deborah? Not at all. So she met him a couple of times in the tub. But she knew that Mike used to visit him every day. So she takes the diary round to Tony Deborah, a man she hardly knows, and what happens? She didn't go in, she knocked on the door. This is Anne's story, I'm now quoting. Um, she didn't go in, she was terribly scared. She handed him this brown paper parcel and she said to him, give it to Mike, don't tell him where it came from because if you tell him where it came from, he will start handing my father. And her father at that stage was dying of cancer and indeed he died very soon afterwards. She said, I don't want Mike pestering my dad, don't tell him where you got it from. Why didn't she just give it to him directly? Well, for that very reason, because she would then have had to answer where she got it from, and the whole story, which heaven knows is complicated enough, I mean, we know that now, uh, the whole story would have come out, and Mike would have gone straight to her father, and her father was in, I mean, we all know, he was in a bad state at that time. What did she expect Mike to do with it? I think, she, I think she thought he was just going to work on it. Um, I think she thought it would keep him busy. I, I genuinely do not think that she wanted him to bring it down to London. She had no interest in it. Um, she, we've spoken to Caroline since, and Caroline, the daughter, remembers vividly the pair of them fighting on the floor. Uh, real physical fighting to stop Mike and didn't want Mike to bring it to London. Um, as she told me, she thought that Dorian would give him a flea in his ear and send him packing. Um, and, of course, she didn't. And the thing took off from there. Um, Anne did not want to come to the launch. She did not want the publicity. She's a very shy person. Um, she has blossomed since. Um, no getting away from that. She's learning. And I gather she has agreed, given her um, educational course um, um, allowances that she will speak to you here in um, the early new year, which will be very interesting because you will have a chance then to see whether you think Anne Graham Barrett is lying. We've come to Anne rather sooner than I had anticipated, but we're with her, so let's stay with her. And let me remind you, let me remind everyone here that when Anne Graham, if she does sit where Shirley sits in February. Um, her story uh, is absolutely crucial uh, to the accepted authenticity of the diary. Her testimony is crucial 
uh, a story that it has been in the family, the diary has been in the family for over 30 years. Um, we've heard how she gave it to Tony Devereaux to give to Mike, asking Tony not to mention that she Anne had given it to him, Tony. Um, in other words, she wanted her involvement kept a dark secret. To thicken the mix, as we heard in February, Paul Fellman's subsequent investigation um, revealed that Anne Graham might in fact be the illegitimate great-granddaughter of Florence Maybrick. Um, Anne Graham stands condemned by ripperologists and others on four counts. One, she forged the diary with her husband, with her then husband, Michael Barrett. Two, she deceived her husband about the existence of the diary after forging it with him. Three, she misled a police investigation into the origins of the diary by saying nothing. Four, she told the press she knew nothing about the origins of the diary and then changed her story. Added to that, there is a strong suspicion that she has been heavily bribed to invent the story about giving it to Tony Devereaux to invent the Maybrick family link. On top of all this, Anne Graham has now written a book about Florence Maybrick, as Shirley said, which is due to be published by Headline in February as a lead title. There's a lot to unpick there, um, and a lot to unpack as well, and I know that your book focuses very heavily on the credibility of Anne Graham. Um, what is the truth about her? I don't think we still know. Um, I think three of those accusations are probably justified. Um, she did lead the, mislead the police, she certainly misled us, um, and the other one... Well, she misled uh, her husband. She misled her husband, perfectly true. She did all of those things. Um, I don't know that she ever actually lied about any of it, but she certainly deceived us all. Um, but, why did she do it? Well. You have to ask yourself, I mean, Anne Graham, if she forged this diary, the time that she would have been forging it, she and Mike, her marriage was on the rocks. We know now that they were fighting all the time. He was already drunk. They couldn't have got together a sophisticated document like this. A document which is now, I have to say to my great delight, at last going into the academic field in that it is being the subject of a seminar at, at um, International Conference of Psychologists in Liverpool in September. Um, it is a very sophisticated piece of work. I keep hearing it's a very amateurish fake. Easy nonsense. enough to put together. Absolute nonsense. Um, this, if you read the diary, and if you keep reading it, like we have had to do, the more you read, the more you get gripped. It goes on and on. You keep finding, it's a bit like Shakespeare, you keep finding new twists, new turns, new psychological um, reasons for, for saying, hang about, what's that about? You know, what's going on here? Might that be because you want to see ghosts? You want to see things in there? You want to put new interpretations on it? You could, you could say that, certainly. I have. Yes, okay, well I accept that, perfectly possible. Um, but there is evidence that that is not correct, that is not good enough. Um, there's plenty of evidence. 
um, which supports the uh, evidence. All right, I'll give you a few. I'll try and pick them up. There is just so much information in this diary. Okay, um, we have. Let's say on the internal side, um, James Maybrick. Uh, we know because we found material in university records and also in the public record office documents that have not been read, weren't generally accessible to the public. James Maybrick liked, he was a self-promoter. He liked to um, use names that gave him, um, he was self-aggrandissement, he, he, he was a big head, but, uh, but he was a very weak man. So he liked to call himself Sir Jim. He liked the idea of being better than he was. Um, what do we find? We find that he um, bought himself a coat of arms just before he got married, with, um, which was quite beyond the station that he, he held in Liverpool. We find that according to letters and documents from people who knew in the family, his pet name was Sir Jim. Sir Jim comes up in the diary. He calls himself Sir Jim. Indeed, he says he wishes he called himself Sir Jim instead of calling himself Jack the Ripper. Um, it's this kind of thing which makes you feel that there is something else going on here. And that's, that is just a very small example. You talk about the internal evidence, um, the historical evidence, and let's make a leap of faith and say that, all right, it was written 1888, 1889. Um, let me pick over Mary Kelly's heart with you, which I know is an, a point which interests Paul Daniel. Um, the Dr. Bond's report, uh, his post-mortem report, indicates that Mary Kelly's heart was not only absent from her body but actually was missing from the room. We have several newspaper reports uh, describing how doctors went to the room, to Kelly's room, looking for something. Thirdly, there was the newspaper report traced by a couple of years ago in Australia um, which describes, which says, quite categorically the heart was missing. So put all those three things together and it's reasonable to say, yeah, okay, well the heart presumably was missing. We come to the diarist and when he's reflecting about the mess in Kelly's court, Miller's court rather, in Kelly's room, um, he says he regrets that he didn't take any part of the body away with him. <coughs> How do you meet that? I don't find any problem there at all. Um, given that um, the accounts were, as you've described them there, quite obviously somewhat confused, and I'm not at all sure that anybody really knew what was going on in the room at the time, that entry in the diary, no heart, no heart, which is one of the, one of the statements that I actually find extremely moving because it is as James Maybrick is dying, and he is regretting so badly everything that's happened. And he said, no harm, no harm. Regret he didn't take anything away with him. Perhaps he didn't. Perhaps he left it there. Perhaps it was burnt to the fire. There isn't actually any proof of what happened at all. I don't, my, I don't understand what the problem over the heart is. Well, the problem is the conflict. At some point, one has to accept something. 
um, without... Well, okay, let's start with the diary being genuine. Well, let's, Maybe st let's stay with the example that I want, which is to do with the heart, which other people can join yes, in. Yes, but it could be, were the diary genuine, that it's rewriting history, the perception of what happened in Mary Kelly's room, if the diary is genuine. Okay, let's move on to another area then. The writing of the diary, James. Uh, we have the authenticated writing of James May, but we have his will. We were reminded in February by Adrian Morris that this is not uh, written in a Victorian hand. Well, that to start with is the kind of rather superficial statement that I get. I do get irritated with. It takes a lot to irritate me. But um, one of the first things we did was take this document to the British Museum, who said there is no such thing as, a, as an authenticated Victorian hand. That's clearly not, there is no Victorian handwriting. There is what we all think of as a school board type of copper plate, which a lot of people used, but it wasn't. Plenty, plenty of examples of other people who didn't use that kind of writing. So, okay, the handwriting, I thought this was a huge problem at the beginning. It is, a, I suppose it is still a problem. I'm going to ask, which of James Maybrick's handwriting are we talking about? Um, at the beginning, we had nothing. Then we found the will. There is dispute over the will, because Paul Feldman doesn't believe the will is genuine. I'm not sure that I go along with that. I don't think Paul and I see eye to eye on that one. Um, but other writing has recently been found, and it was Paul who found it, to give him his due, um, of James Maybrick, some of which is very different. Um, and creakingly, um, and it is strange, this, um, a dear boss letter has also been unearthed in the police files, uh, which was written by someone signing themselves Jack the Ripper on the way to Galashiels in Scotland said he's on the way to the Tweed factories. Well, we know, obviously, James Maybrick as a cotton merchant had a lot to do with Tweed factories. He was, he was going up and down to Scotland. Um, the writing of that letter is um, similar to the writing of some of the handwriting that we have. It is not like the writing of the diary, of James Maybrick's handwriting. It doesn't like the writing of the diary. And this is the perpetual problem. But, I, th I do think handwriting is very difficult. I do think it's terribly unreliable. There have been a lot of cases uh, fairly recently when handwriting experts have actually been wrong. Um, you can look at Florence Maybrick's handwriting. At the beginning of her life, it was flowing and spidery. By the end of her life, it was upright and completely different. And if I may, I brought this because I knew this question would come up. Um, and I think most people have a high regard for Don Rumbelow. Um, well, in Don Rumbelow's book, um, The Complete Jack the Ripper, he says, um, the main objection is that very little reliance can be placed on handwriting comparison. The handwriting of German murderer Peter Curtin, who was known as the Dusseldorf Ripper because of the way he imitated his notorious predecessor, changed completely after each murder. So much and so, that indeed, that he used to point out to his wife the anonymous letters he wrote to the police and which were reproduced in the papers. So confident was he that she would never recognize them, nor did she. Um, sorry. Um, I, I don't know that there is an explanation of it. I think I have to be honest about that. I, I don't know whether that is correct or not. Well, three different people yes. said, said it. 
what it doesn't give the appearance of Victorian handwriting, that was the criticism, wasn't it? <laughs> so if they were trying to do that, they failed. Um, okay, let's move on to the ink then. Um, let me summarize the ink very, very quickly. Most people's understanding, as I understand it, of the ink. Um, very early on, tests were done in this country by Nick Eastor and in America by Bob Garantz. Both of them said, yes, uh, there is nothing uh, in the ink which is inconsistent with the Victorian uh, ink. Up pops Michael Barrett a year later says, hey folks, I forged a diary with diamine ink. Tests are done on the ink again and it is revealed, discovered, that the diary is written in diamine ink. Not only that, it contains a modern preservative unique to diamine, introduced by diamine into the ink in 1974. Right, okay, I'll take issue with that to start with. Um, the tests that were done, um, first of all, Keith is right, in America and in here, there was nothing found in the ink that was inconsistent with the date of 1888. Um, the tests that were organized by Melvin Harris, which uh, went to analysis for industry, did indeed find a minute amount of chlorocetamide, which really sent the shivers up our spine and got us all worried because of this fact that it was in this ink, diamine. Uh, so I had the uh, more samples taken up to Leeds University, who found a small amount at the beginning of their tests cleaned up the utensils, did a second run, and found absolutely nothing at all. Um, and gave me a long treatise on why chlorocetamide is an unreliable thing to be looking for, because there's all sorts of reasons I don't understand. Anyway, they said um, it wasn't in the ink, so I thought the only thing I could do was to get down the chief chemist for diamine itself, a lovely chap called Alec Boyer, who spent his life in ink, um, and he came down to London um, and he sat in the office with Keith, with Sally Lee and Robert and he took a long time going through the diary and his summary, which is all in the new edition, was this is not diamine ink. Um, and it doesn't look like diamine ink and he gave me a lot of reasons why it wasn't. So he dismissed the fact that it was either that it was diamine ink anyway. Um, in desperation at that point, I decided to write to um, the ICI research laboratories at Wilton and ask them if they would do a test because they've got the best equipment apparently in the country, if not in Europe. I had a letter back from them saying it can't be done. You cannot reliably date the ink on the paper and if you were to try it, it would set you back thousands of pounds. I do not recommend that you do it. Uh, what am I supposed to do with that point? Let's talk about the watch, which is often overlooked. Can you remind us how it entered the story? Oh dear, that was another bombshell. Um, just before publication of the hardback, and Robert got the phone call from Liverpool, another Liverpool voice, and it was Albert Johnson who got a watch, which he said was James Maybrick's. I'll try, I'll keep this short. The watch does have engraved in its back, not so as you can see it from the naked eye, um, the words, I am Jack, the signature of James Maverick and the initials of the five women around the edges. Um, Albert Johnson himself, not me, he paid, he's the forger of those, he was a brave man, he paid for uh, Manchester University, you missed, to have those fractures analysed. 
Um, when he brought the watch to London, I paid them. This is the sort of thing that comes out of that advance that I've made so much money off. Um, I paid for that watch to be tested down in Bristol. Bristol said exactly the same as Manchester. The scratches in the watch are certainly not new. Um, they were typically scientifically guarded. They said they are at least tens of years old. Um, but Robert, um, what was his name? Um, oh, the, the, anyway, the scientist down in, in uh, Bristol told Robert um, that, in his opinion, they were very old and they were probably um, of the date that we thought they might be. Albert Johnson. Who is he? Bit of a wide boy, isn't he? <laughs> bit of a Liverpool convert. No, he's not. His brother was a bit of a wide boy, possibly. But no, Albert Johnson is a deeply religious. Um, and he's a lovely guy. He's no Mike no Barrett. Um, How old is he? Albert Johnson, 50, 50s, early 50s, something like that. Um, I would have said, I mean, I, I, I could be wrong, we can all be wrong, but he's as honest as the day is wrong. Along. He writes religious poetry. Um, he's deeply, deeply serious, um, and he didn't know about James Maybrick. When he first, um, he took the watch into his office, because he collects brick, bric-a-brac, antiques, bits and pieces, took the watch into his mates at the university where he was a, a watchman and um, a porter, and they were talking about the Antiques Roadshow and talking about currants and what was available in certain periods and he took the watch in and they, they noticed the scratches and they said let's go and look at this and put it under the microscope and they said uh, that there was this um, name of James Maybrick and this was coincidental with the time the big article appeared in the, in the Liverpool Post and Echo um, and they got it all wrong they thought James Maybrick had murdered his wife and put the bodies under the floorboard they got the whole thing up the creek and when he brought it down to us, he was still very uncertain about the facts. Um, Albert Johnson's no crook, but the watch is an enormous puzzle. It was the last thing we wanted because we knew that everybody would say, oh, here, you know, here comes the evidence, here it is, all, all the cooked up stories that are coming in to support the diary. But it wasn't like that. Let me ask you finally, because I can feel everyone bursting to ask you questions, why did Michael Barrett confess? Because he was heartbroken, because he'd gone to pieces by that time. He was absolutely devastated that Anne, his wife, had left him. Um, he was drinking, he was heavily alcoholic, um, and the confession really was the cry of an angry, unhappy, broken man. Every single scrap of that confession um, has been countered and met. I mean, for instance, he says he bought it at an auction in Uthwaite and Blitherland. Well, we have um, a letter from Uthwaite and Blitherland which says, we do not conduct our auctions in this way. There never was a lock, lock number like that. This is wrong. Um, and the same thing applies to every single scrap of Michael Barrett's confession. He's retracted it anyway, of course. I mean, he, he did that straight away afterwards. Um, he was so angry with her, so bitter. Um, he was bitter that he felt she'd taken his baby away from him, in a way. He felt she'd scooped the diary. But he now accuses her of forging the diary. Yes, but this is typical Mike. I mean, because Mike is now out of control, you actually can't rely on anything he says. And any of us who've suffered Mike's phone calls for three and four hours in the middle of the night, I mean, we've all had it. 
um, will know that you can't rely on Mike. And it is such a tragedy because Mike holds, in many ways, he holds the key to the thing. Mm. I've heard, isn't this just a case of four just falling out? <laughs> oh, you mean you're, you're putting um, the gang of four right? you're in with Mike? Mike and I just having a disagreement oh, about right, the right. proceeds of the diary falling out, getting a divorce. Well, I still love that. Hmm? That's what I've heard. Oh, I'm sure you've heard that one. But I mean, you tell <laughs> me, how did Mike and Anne get to the public record office? How did they um, get all the information that is not available in the press? And there is plenty of it. Don't you really read the diary? Um, how did they pull all that together when they were already in dispute? I would. Dispute that Anne was, you, in full time, Anne was in full time work. <laughs> he was looking after Caroline. He was at home on an invalidity pension. Are these people who could afford a thing like that? Mm. I think it's unlikely. Mm. All right, you've heard what Shirley has to say. Let's hear from somebody who talk believes the diary is mm. modern twaddle. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, right. well, hello, can we have a hands up? Does yes. anybody actually believe it's a modern forgery? Because that's really all I'm concerned about. Right, okay. Ask me. Well, I mean, you were saying about uh, the fact that it wasn't Victorian, or as you claim, it's not Victorian handwriting. I mean, that would surely... Can you speak up? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, if it wasn't Victorian handwriting, I mean, but it is Victorian handwriting. There's plenty of handwriting like that in Victorian times. You can look in... in um, Why do you say it isn't, Adrian? Well, no, no, I mean, like, um, it's not, not just you, because a document examiner in America, Rendell, I think, said it was not Victorian. So it's not just you. Well, I mean, I think the people that I've talked to, like Mark, and... I also, I also remember the time when um, uh, Paul Feldman was here. Yeah. I, I said it, it, it was Victorian handwriting. I mean, you were you were actually here, yes. early, and you yes. turned around and you said that it wasn't Victorian handwriting. No, what I mean is that um, it is not what is accepted as classic Victorian handwriting. When people talk about Victorian handwriting, I think what they understand is the school board copper plate pots and coat hangers, that, that sort of writing, which produces the stylized kind of writing which they used in documents. James Maybrick's will and some of the handwriting in his formal letters is like that. It's a bit nearer to the, to the Victorian school board writing. Um, it, some of his other, other personal stuff is not. So, so you can see that the, the handwriting in the diary is different from uh, James Maybrick's known handwriting? Yes. Do you have any accounts for that? No, I can't. It's a puzzle. I mean, I have never ever hidden the fact that there are things about the diary, there are probably four things, I think it's four, um, that I feel are unresolved, and I've listed them in the new edition. I've been, I mean, I'm totally upfront about it. There are things we have not got to the end of, but resources are limited. It is very difficult to, it's inexhaustible the amount of research that needs to be done. I shall carry on um, as long as I can. Would you follow Paul Feldman's uh, theory that the, uh, the, two, the difference between James Maybrook's known handwriting and the handwriting in the diary strengthens 
um, James Mica, uh, James Maybrick as the writer of the diary because he's 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 saying that it's like a multiple personality. Yes, um, well, in a way, that is what I suppose Don was saying, wasn't it? That um, people do use a different sort of handwriting for different purposes, and therefore that's why it's unreliable. Um, I I think that there are enough examples of that um, to say that is that is correct. I think handwriting does change. Is it because the handwriting gives you a problem, Adrian, that you say that it isn't Victorian, that that immediately makes it a modern forgery for you? Well, it's not just that, it's just the fact that it, it doesn't fluctuate. You know, if, if it wasn't his real handwriting, yes, I would expect fluctuations. But why does that make it modern forgery, a modern hoax? Because, uh, well, I mean, like... Well, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I would imagine... But you must have a reason... Yeah, there is a reason, yeah. because somebody who's forging a modern uh, document is assuming that uh, James Maybrick, being a Victorian and, and a minor Victorian, has not left any handwriting examples uh, behind. What do you base that assumption on? Well, you know, I mean, if anybody's forging it, they're, they're assuming that... Uh, Maybrick not being a, a, a major Victorian w would have left it uh, and when Maybrick's handwriting has surfaced like on the will and, and so forth uh, it's been completely different. So you don't feel that a modern forger I feel might mean. think about the existence of a will? Well I mean like that, that's really up to them. But if you think it's a modern forgery, are you thinking that it's Mike Barrett? No, I, I wouldn't have a clue who forged it. Well, I think, I'd say I think, Andrew, actually, but I I think in fairness to us, you have to address that. Yeah, but, yes, but, yes, but like, like Keith Skinner, I wasn't there at the time. Um, could you perhaps say that yeah, if it, it were a forgery, Yes. people were conscious of modern forgery, that there was, let's say, a Victorian style of writing, but the diary would have been written in copper paper. Yeah. If it were a forgery. Surely. Wouldn't it? Yes. Well, can you say it again? Well, what I'm saying is that if it is a forgery, surely it would have been written in what seems to be perceived as Victorian copper paper handwriting. That would, that would be able to satisfy you. Why not make, do you want to respond to that? Do you want to respond through me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my theory, I mean, my, I don't know what Victorian handwriting looks like. I mean, I could imagine what Victorian handwriting would look like. I mean, I suppose I could do a, a caricature of Victorian handwriting. Well, the Dear Boss letter is fairly prominent. <laughs> yeah, but I, I can't, I, again, there's a problem there because I can't understand why the Dear Boss letter, which the writer of the diary seems to be... Uh, claiming credit for. Mm -hmm. I mean, one would have thought that the writer of the diary would have been putting it in that handwriting mm -hmm. of the Dear Boss letter. And I think that the reason why is because the forger yeah. has decided to just simply do a sort of like a, um, a sort of a caricature Victorian handwriting over the duration of the whole diary. Mm -hmm. So what do you think then, if it's a modern forgery, was the purpose of it being written? For, for the simple reason of uh, claiming to be a, a diary of Jack the Ripper. So who's gaining on it? Well, I mean... <laughs> you, you have to go on from that, I think. 
Well, and I'm going to assume that we know. If you want a simple answer, the person who's gained the most probably is Anne Graham. Anne Graham's gained nothing, though. She's got a book coming out in February. And I won't make for any money. She'll be very lucky if that makes her any money. So you're saying in, when she started this enterprise, she knew what the uh, publishing uh, trade was all about. But a lot of people feel, and I'm pretty she sure she knew nothing whatever about it. Yes, but a lot Absolutely of people. Absolutely You said all. you said earlier that a lot of people assume that you made a lot of money out of this. Yes. There are a lot of people that have these preconceived conceptions. Oh yes, I agree. They will have the preconceived. They're wrong. And she might have done that. She might have had this idea that it was going to make but she a lot didn't of money. Want the diary down in London? She wouldn't come to the launch. Dory had to really persuade her. Yeah, you've got to remember initially she, she initially she had uh, Michael uh, Barrett taking the credit for the diary. You've got to remember when it first came out that the Times, the Sunday Times were investigating mm. it. She mm. was probably frightened that it might have uh, initially caused a lot of problems. Yes, she probably was. And when right. that was all over, She's probably claimed credit for it now. And how do you account for the research notes which tell a different story? Which we've got. They're going to be in the next edition too. Um, Michael Barrett's research notes, which keep asking questions. I don't understand this. I don't know why, you know, I can't can't get the answer to it. I don't know where this information is. But those sort of questions. Yes. Yeah. Hello, Andy. Sue, with you. Good. Right. Keep hearing that it's a diary. It's not any. I don't I understand of any diary contains dates, Yeah, it's not a diary. I, oh, I, well, you keep referring to so what is it? I know. Well, I've always oh, thought... Oh, it's a journal. Yeah, I, well, I don't even actually think it's a journal. Um, but it's ever so difficult to know what to call it when you're actually marketing it. Um, it is uh, the rambling, the jottings of a man on the, on the, on a, the road to... Well, and he was dying when he wrote it, wasn't he? Um, they're not, it's not a diary, they're, they're just thoughts. You know, I mean, have you not kept that kind of um, diary where when pressure gets too much, you put your thoughts on paper and you don't date it, you just put things down. I've got loads of books like that. I'm not questioning the... I don't mind if you do. Now, the thing is, there is a perfect person to write a diary Anything to do with paper? Anything to do with paper? Or, or someone who works in the print industry. Yeah. Uh, now, because someone who works in the print industry is convenient for your own, not for you. Yeah. He's, uh, <laughs> he's died, right? Yeah. So, uh, no, he's got access to paper to read. The next diaries, uh, you can go most second-hand antique bookshops to pick them up for the 1890s, 1890s, So, like... Yeah, ledger books. Legible, to me, Do you reckon that Tony Deborah, who was already a sick man, had the money to come down to London to go to the public record office 
to spend well, time no, in the newspaper library. So what you're su what you're suggesting, Andy, if I represent you correctly, is that Tony Devereaux, possibly with Mike Barrett, possibly with Anne Graham, actually. There no, was I haven't mentioned Anne Graham. All right, Mike and Mike and uh, uh, Tony then. Well, you've mentioned Mike Barrett. All right, let's say Tony by himself. Yeah. Created this document. I would say the thing was suspicious. Fine. Um, how was he going to explain it? He would have. So he knew that. Or create the document and die. It doesn't make. It doesn't hold. Uh, yes. Yeah. Actually, I'll ask the, gen the, the gentleman actually behind you, on Andy's right, might have his hand in the. Uh, you want? You have a question? You didn't. You were waiting for Andy to buy your drink. Right. Well, I have. All right, Paul. 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 He was already dead by the time we no, got the diary. I, I mean, when he gave the diary to, to, to Mike. No, he was then, ill. He was he was ill. He um, broke his head. He broke his head. Yeah. It was yeah, that sort of thing. No, no. 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 <laughs> Could I, I ask a question? I never ask questions. No, thank God for that. <laughs> um, it's just in light of the uh, little child better, and certainly in uh, providence of any of the police, uh, the chief police uh, um, leaders at the time, that they actually say that um, we suspect an enterprising journalist invented the name Jack the Ripper. And the little child letter, and certainly Mr. Evans' uh, research, has uncovered the, the possibility that the journalist, who was uh, two journalists that worked for the Central News Agency, knows both McNaughton and um, Warren, I believe, might be wrong on Warren, but certainly, um, who claims that he did invent the name Jack Ripper. So if that's the case, that we can prove that, uh, and it, it comes from four different three different sources, if not four, that an enterprising journalist did invent the name Jack the Ripper. Why is it that James Maybrick, in the supposed diary, would also write himself as Jack the Ripper, when we don't know, possibly, from other sources other than the diary, that, that uh, the name Jack the Ripper was invented by an enterprising journalist? It's fair comment. It's possibly, you said. Um, well, uh, it's... The percentage for the enterprising journalists, which is usually going to be more or pulling, is far greater yes, yes, than it is going to be So if they, if it's recognised they invented uh, Jack Ripper, why the hell did James Maybrick sign um, this journal diary as Jack Ripper as well? well thus claiming that he was Jack Ripper. I would ask then if it were someone, say, like um, Fullen, um, where does he get all this information about James Maybrick? Why on earth did he pick up? Oh, I'm not suggesting, I'm sorry, I'm not suggesting that Bullying invented the diary, I'm just saying that oh, the invention right. of the name Jack yes. Ripper oh, yeah, predates right, right. Um, yes. the, uh, the Maybrick diary, mm. um, which was invented at the time. Mm. It was, it means, it's clear to me that um, when Jack the Ripper, the name Jack the Ripper came on, it was presented from the Central News Agency, which Bullying and Moore 
ran. I mean, Moore was the was the manager, and Bulling was the the oppo, the journalist. And, and certainly, we know from contemporary records and in books that Bulling has been named as possibly the guy who invented Jack the Ripper. Therefore, if we know where the name Jack the Ripper was invented from. Why would James Maybrick suddenly decide to sign himself sure, James? Surely, sure, 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 sure. sure. it was just like Thank you. And yes, exactly. Therefore, it doesn't prove that James Maybrick was Jack the Ripper. He just chose to to sign himself that way. You see, this is. I mean, Shirley. What we've got to point out here, Shirley. Mm. I don't know if that's been. Uh, Shirley has taken on board and written the book based on the uh, journal. Reported to be by James Maybrick, there is a confusion where Paul Feldman gets in, who has taken it another way, and I'm sure you, you also take the division of what you've done and what Paul Feldman does, because you might be sort of put into the Feldman bracket. I mean, you have done, <coughs> Feldman's done some very good work, as indeed you have, but I mean, there might be a confusion of what you've done, what Feldman's Paul done. came into the story um, late rather than early, um, towards the end of the first year. Um, he was already making a film on the Ripper and with Keith and um, Paul and uh, Martin as advisors uh, was going on the J.K. Stephen, which I think was right. They're going on the Druid. Oh, Druid. Druid. Sorry, Druid. Um, Paul didn't, I think, want to get involved with the diary. It was actually Anna Corrin coming over and Anna Corrin's report, which we witnessed, actually, I was there with Sally and um, Keith, um, which was so astonishing at the time that he felt there was more in this than he realised and he wanted to take it on board. Paul then went on, uh, we're on difficult ground here, he went off and ploughed his own very idiosyncratic furrow. Um, which was totally independent of me and our research was um, hampered considerably in many ways because he had a lot of money which he poured into research which kept cutting across what I was trying to do so every time I got a contact it was being scooped up by Paul who got there first and because he didn't have the experience I feel of researching um, he, the moment the water very often got muddy Thank God Keith was with him a lot of the time and he kept a lot of it rooted in some semblance of, of truth. Um, but it has been difficult, that has, because um, I have desperately tried, I haven't always succeeded, but I have desperately tried not to weave a story that was the story I wanted to weave, that was a story according to the facts as they appeared. Um, and that is where Paul and I were different. Yes, um, that was the distinction I wanted to make sure, yeah. because otherwise you'll be... I mean, yeah. This, I mean, this my, might be used to a I, 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 yes. I try um, not to... I mean, the hollow laughter here. Right. Not this this gentleman here right. definitely has a question. Can I follow up? Yes, thank you. Can I follow up on that point? <laughs> one of my patrons is learning wonderful stuff. Just... Thank you. I just wanted to ask... I just wanted to ask you a very general point from your side of the journey. Um, I've read most of what you've written, and I wondered whether there was some point, I mean, obviously, we accept that you met a lot of people, and you read, and you read a lot of stuff. Was there some point in your work when you had what was tantamount to a four-line flash 
and it came into your mind, God, this is true. Oh, at the beginning, but not in the first few weeks. Um, Can I just finish my question? Yes, or sorry. I just wondered whether, as I feel about Philip, whether it was a gradual layer thing where he was actually wanting things to fall into place mm. and he was going out looking and my god they were falling into place and he was real happy mm. and i just wonder whether you actually had a little flesh and you thought yes this is something worth getting my teeth into as mm. you know coming from your background mm. you presumably you wouldn't early on have taken on something that didn't appeal to you no you're you're right and i, I hope i can answer that one honestly um, I have always, and this is not a scientific answer to the question, and it isn't good enough to people who want um, scientific answers to the diary, but I have always had a strong feeling that the psychology in this diary is the thing which at the end of the day is the thing that rings true. Um, there is something about the emotion which I feel cannot be, I don't care how great writers are. You've got to be a blooming great writer to write this diary. Um, it has got some quite remarkable insights into human nature um, and human emotion and tragedy. And I felt this right from the beginning and I'm just, this is why I'm so delighted that now David Cantor has done, I know he's the professor of psychology at Liverpool University, who's a um, very well known for offender profiling, and he agreed to do a preface for me. Um, and the preface, in essence, says, he doesn't say the diary is genuine, but what he does say is, whoever wrote it was a very, very clever man who had the genius to think of Maybrick, who was a most unlikely suspect as a ripper, and then the sensitivity to create around him the kind of story that he did. Um, that, to me, is what matters more than anything else. Um, but I agree, that's not an answer. That's just why I have kept on. Gentleman down here had a question. Yes, I did. I did you can remember it. No, I've got a couple of things that I'm not very happy about. I'm you all can help me on this. I don't know the last question. So bear with me. Marital problems? No, no, it's <laughs> all. The fact is that I believe maybe it was a pretty wealthy man. He went to America and back. No, he wasn't wealthy. No, he wasn't wealthy. He was well off. But he was he ever a certain area where he wouldn't... I mean, this particular diary isn't an actual sort of diary, is it? It's more. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a photograph album. Possibly, yeah. That had half the pages ripped out at the beginning. Why? I don't know why. We don't know why. I'm confused about that. And the also, it starts in the middle of a sentence. I believe if somebody keeps a diary, they will keep the diary for many years. Well, we don't any, know that he didn't, do we? Well, do you know that he did? No. So why is the only diary you've got is the one with mm. suits for murders? So I thought about that actually myself last week. I was thinking about it and wondering. Um, well, well, because I would have said probably. I mean, I have kept diaries on and off. But I, well, not diaries, but I, as I said before, if I haven't been clandy, um, when I'm under emotional pressure, I write to myself. Um, I don't write a diary. I just you write, write in, in that sort of the book, which is not. So oh, I write in any old scrap. Any old bit of paper. Yes. Yeah, so what would he do it then? I don't see why not. So I never scary. keep a diary before then, or have they been just? Well, we don't know when he's that. Paul is waving his hand on the back. I just want to know keep the sitting room. So patiently, we were discussing things like this about, I mean, he doesn't go now. 
<laughs> well, six uh, years now. Six years. Uh, one of the reasons to answer your question is, is that it was, it's not a photograph album because photograph albums in those days, you didn't know those little sticky forms that they used. They were designed so that you could swap a photograph in and it was all regular size. All we've got is something that contained photographs and we know they were of the standard size of photographs, so it's something that stuck photographs in, but presumably you also stuck other stuff in, so we're looking at the scrap. So this is possibly a book of memorabilia of some common sort. Facebook. A common Facebook, yes. I mean, things that you might do when you're in love with somebody, so you collect theatre tickets and bits of stranded hair. You know, all the things that all the rest of people have done. <laughs> One could argue that James Maybrick is sitting there looking through this book of memorabilia about his loved one and concentrating on, uh, on the fact that she's having these affairs with people and gets a little bit warbling about it. Now, what's he supposed to do? He, he goes out and he buys a book for this? So he writes in anything that's hand. But if he's never written a book before, then... It's not a diary, is it? It's, well, it's a journey of what he does. Actually, it's not a daily basis. We, we, we've also established that we don't actually know what this thing is. We don't have a word for it. It's so really he suddenly starts writing down what he does every day. It's a book of exorcism, really, I think, at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So he's ex exercising his soul. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it that way, uh, maybe you have an explanation for why that particular type of book and that sort of paper was chosen. I'll go on to ask, this, ask yourself why it is that if everybody says that the easiest thing in the world is to rip out the front page because it's an old thing that's got somebody's shopping list in the beginning, so we rip out those pages. Why didn't the forger rip out all the pages and get rid of them all together and just give us a stack of loose leaf papers? Well, I'd like an expert to look at the edges of the bricks. They've done so that. They've done that. And that's Same it. So it's consistent with the days of the diary itself. Is it? The paper is fine. We had that done, it was Donald Rumbler actually after the last meeting, so he thought who thought it might have had problems. Uh, we had a meeting at CAMS and um, they, um, it was looked at then, um, but he, the, um, this was a friend of Donald's, we asked Donald to, he asked Donald to bring this particular chap who's a paper expert and uh, with no priming at all. We looked at it in Robert's office and he told us exactly what he thought of the the paper was cut out at the same time as the paper of the diary. Did you say what paper? Kind of yes, we've got details of the type of paper. I can't tell you what it is now, but I mean it's technical. But um, we have got, we know what it, we know what sort of book it was, and we know what sort of paper it was. What sort of book was it? Well, uh, like a commonplace book. He described it as a guard book. Yeah. A guard book. A guard book. Yes, his expression was a guard book. He'd seen many of those. So this confirms that it's a scrapbook. I've been saying that it was six years ago. Yes. Anyway, if the diary was at least. Right. Can we move on to another question here? Yes. 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 More of a comment than a question. It's kind of. So if I committed a bunch of crimes and I lived in a house with a wife, servants, brothers, God knows what, wandering in the house, but I had to put it down on paper, I would do it with my left hand. 
I wouldn't use my normal hand, I'd use the other hand. Within a week, you can teach yourself how to write with a different hand. Anybody found that document, it wouldn't be in my handwriting. You've talked about handwriting tests. Do, do, do people get tested for both hands? Or do they just say, what hand do you write with? It was a piece of writing. Anybody, if that had been written by Maybrick, and it had been found in his house in the middle of the murders, it wouldn't have been in his handwriting. He would have been. But the other comment is that if you write with a different hand to what you do normally, what comes out on paper has got a lot of what you might call dark fantasy. It's not your everyday personality. I'm, I'm saying left, right, left hand, right hand, because that's the terminology they use in America, assuming that everybody's right handed. If he was left handed, he would have been with his right hand. What you get is a different, different personality, which is a lot more primitive and dark. And I can almost imagine that Maybrick invented it, but wrote it down as an act of psychological desperation at that time in his life, blah, blah, blah. Because if anybody found it, it wouldn't have been in his handwriting. So what conclusions do you draw from your two statements? I draw the conclusion that has anybody tested the people that are involved in Liverpool now for, for how they're like, if they can do it, I'm dexterous. No. Or has any psychological expert said that a person, there is a relationship between, you can spot different styles of handwriting, different hands, but you can still identify that one too. Are you, you're, are you talking about the two people, you're talking about Anne and Michael? Whether they Anne and Michael and also the guy with the watch, because I find them a little bit too good to be true. Mm -hmm. I feel that the watch could have started before the diary, and I feel that the fact, I mean the Victorians thought the guy was a religious maniac. And you're telling me this guy couldn't do anything because they're either you know? Or they're the worst, you know? I mean, um, <laughs> that's what I feel about it. So, I mean, um, everybody should have been, and not only that, the guy who died. What about the scientific tests on the watch? Do you dismiss those? It's my theory, which I invented at the conference, which is that <laughs> when I was a lad, I trained as a training surveyor, and my first day at work, I measured Worcester Base Course to within two hundredths of an inch using the soles of my feet only. Um, there's a lot of working class people in Liverpool who work in shipyards and they do tolerances of the metal of the ships to a very, very fine degree. You do not need a university to do very, very fine metal work. You know, because in the in the diary, in your bit of the diary, I mean Mel uh, Goldman's book, it says that to, to do that level of faking, you'll need access to pretty good equipment. But the fact is, where there's shipyards or aeroplane factories or whatever, they have that equipment and people can get access to it. And I think that the fact that it came from Liverpool might explain the watch. But I really think the watch predated the diary. And how do you account for the um, brass embedded in the watch, which is corroded? Somebody put it, somebody might have done it. I, can, I, I don't think it's, a, I'm not sure it's a modern poetry, but I think sometime between 1914 and about 1910. Say so, so that again, you think it's between then? Between about the night, everybody goes on about it goes back to the Second World War time, 1940s. Are you talking about the watch here? The watch, I've forgotten the dates of the watch, but I, I'm certain that they're linked. <coughs> right. You know, I'm but certain that they're linked. You're, you're, you're saying old poetry. So what is the point of testing Mike Barrett and Anne Graham and Tony Devlin? That's where the hands are right. Well, why? They aren't that old. <laughs> 
Well, the Mike was born in 1950. You're saying it's 1940. Why test the end? You know, if you thought you were to watch that belonged to Jack the Ripper, then it's... Well, then there's stuff about my parents. I don't care if my parents... <laughs> to me, it's all soap opera to do with Liverpool. Jack the Ripper is the East End in 1888. And we could argue for years, and we could write loads of books, and we could see the arms, God knows what. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's London in 1888, it's the key to it all. But, but where there are little tests, I mean, I'm fascinated by that because for the first time I've heard somebody who actually hasn't polarised the argument. We've actually gone to the middle ground. Well, it's folklore, mythology. Most of Jack the Lippers stuff is just folklore adding on afterwards. Mm. And this is just one more. And not only that, Liverpool fancies itself something more. And now they've got their little bit of Jack the Lipper. You've got Jack the Lipper in the East End, then you've got the Yorkshire Lipper. 80 years later, and now Liverpool's got Jack So, I mean, follow that through. Somebody in the 40s or the 30s had made, has made a connection between James Maybrick and Jack the Ripper. If you think about it, all it needs is a signature of James Maybrick. Someone's it might got, actually have been... But someone's got signature. to make a connection, first of all. Yeah, but the thing is, that connection involves using five names... And how many people in the Scotland Yard files, there isn't five names, there's 12 or 15 or something. It involves using two names, James Maybrick and Jack Boyeka, connect the no, two. No, but what about the initials? The initials of the victims. That's the bit that I, that makes me think it's a forgery, because I don't accept those initials. An old forgery. Yeah, because when Catherine Edwards died, she was probably called Catherine. She was called Catherine Conway in 1881, mm. and she was living with John Kelly. Mm. So, I mean, uh, what do you think might have been the starting point in the 40s for a forgery? I tell you the truth, I think it's something to do with deeming. In, in the literature, I've read about deeming, I've read about Australia. This is liberologist and liberal, but mostly liberologist. Deeming, letters, wives being murdered, and kind of um, there's something else which is a link which I can look at and think, hello. That's got something to do with, that could be the basis of the myth of the diary. Well, if it's Deeming, why isn't the diary in Fred Deeming's name? Why James Maybrick? Because that would have to be... Well, I'm sorry. There's a very quick answer to that, because if you look at any anthology of Victorian crime, the Ripper is always followed by the Maybrick thing, so there's always going to be that connection there. Um, another question that from... That isn't actually always the case. Well, but... but <laughs> were you just, sorry, were you just saying there that you thought that the diary is an old portrait? Mm. Well, I think it's at least... If, 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 as far as I'm concerned, if Anne Graham says that, that I've got no reason to actually disbelieve her. I don't believe her, but I've got no reason to disbelieve her. <laughs> no. right. and, and I can believe that if, if it existed in the 1940s, it's not to bring out. I mean, I can't prove that it wasn't in the 1940s. <laughs> it existed in the 1940s, it's known for Well, it's like the secret story. There's a lot of, a lot of that existed 20 or 30 years yes. before. You know? That's yeah. interesting. So, so we have one person here now who's veering towards... Well, that's what I said five minutes ago. That's right. That's fascinating. <laughs> you know me, Keith, I spent most of my time... Wait, wait, Has anyone got any other questions? Yeah, I've got a question yeah. for Shirley. Is, There's a question down here. Oh, sorry. It's not really a question, but it's something that like interesting about I think we're getting a mic across to you. 
Why are you dressed like a wasp, Andy? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just hanging about, hanging about ready to put the sting in. I was about to say that the first job I had in the early 1950s was in a service solicitors, and there were partners there, I can't remember, three or four of them, I can't really remember. These would be men in their late 50s, early 60s. So they were being born in the 1880s. Um, and they all had two ways of writing. They had their professional way of writing, and they had their rest of the time way of writing. The reason was, of course, when they first entered the profession, typewriting was a bit of a rarity. Most of them couldn't afford the services of a, a secretary, so they had to do it all by hand. And they had these two very distinct ways of writing. And as they got older, they started going well out. And you get one sentence written beautifully, and one one not And so on. And I think this could easily explain the discrepancy of anybody, any professional person's handwriting. Mm -hmm. Well, that is, as I said, the recent correspondence shows that his writing is not the same when he's writing yes. personally as it is in the official document. I think, as you see, this is uh, um, the idea that you put out before in writing complaints is inaccurate at all. No, it isn't. The will, we've got some different by paper, different by class, and the, the, the will would not have been in these overhands. Well, that's Paul Feldman's theory, of course. And, I mean, no man man of his stature would have written his will himself. Would have written his own yeah. will. Now, the Victorian style writing was to go from the left to the right as a slant. And if you look at any of Queen Victoria's letters, as an example of Victorian writing, they all went in the slant from the left to the right. And the writing in the diary bears no resemblance to that. I mean, the man was mad. Mm. And he had two different styles of writing. Mm. When he was getting the thing out of his system, he was scribbling in this journal. Mm. Mm. And that's what... So you are saying you feel that it possibly was written by a man? Absolutely. Not an intelligent journalist who sat down one day and said, I will write a diary. The whole thing out was... Yeah, absolutely. Adam, you had a question? Yes, I have, yeah. Um, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's too late now, boys. It's too late now. Um, I think it's quite well known by everybody that there are 63 or 42 pages. 63. 43. 43. 43. 43. 43. 43. 43. Are there the, the, the end of the diary? Is that going into the that's where the final pages are? No, there's, there's a lot of empty pages after that. I think it's uh, is, is it 18 or is it 8? Well, you know, it's, it's about another, um, about, about another 16 pages. So you have 14 pages that are We've got 63 pages that are written on. That actually means there's only 17 pages left there. And they're, they're just
a, a water one and a, a much more disgraceful state than this. Uh, but it actually had the word scrap album written in, in, in gold in the front. It's exactly the same size as this. And, uh, and, and shared the same characteristic of, of having these guards, these little slips of paper which go in between each sheet. Uh, and you find them not in our photograph albums as well. The purpose is when you're putting in these whatever scraps and bits of photographs, um, when you finish the end of the book, then your book still finishes up about the right size of the spine. If you didn't have these guards in the spine, it would finish up, you know, that kind of shape. Um, and the book I have um, was written, it was held in a, in a, a, a house, a family called the Double Day, this in Cockshaw in Essex. It spread from about 1872 and it finished up about 1908. And people wrote into it right through that period. All I can say is that the handwriting in that scrap album uh, was every bit like this normal Victorian handwriting in James Mayden's and none of it was the more formal comic um, And that, I think, is just a big source of misunderstanding. People talk about Victorian handwriting, and they think about comic notes. My grandfather had a comic book at the age of nine, you know, this beautiful comic note. He was just a pharmacist, but nobody specialist. You're mentioning comic notes. No, but they were talking. Sorry, No, some, all I'm saying is that, Before we go. Well, I'll just finish and I'll say, but. Uh, a lot of Victorian children uh, you know, were taught school, school board and um, contemplate writing, the very formal writing um, which they could do. This gentleman says that you know, the professions they do, that would be the full But when they were writing to partners or business letters, they, didn't, they hadn't got the time to write about that. They just wrote in their own life as we do today. Um, and that is the kind of writing you find in this diary. This is the same kind of writing that I've found in this diary, the same scrap album, all dated from the same period. And each of those entries is dated 1872, 1880, four So there's no doubt about the age Right. Robert published uh, Shirley's uh, book, just in case you're wondering who Robert is. Robert also published The Ripper Legacy, showing that he is a man of great discernment. <laughs> Which was one of the key authors being Keith Skinner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to move on to Paul because Paul, yes. Paul, Paul was actually asking questions not only on behalf of Paul. But yes, we have the help uh, of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, you do indeed. Which this is, is, a, this is from, from somebody called Chris George, who I think he Yes, knows. I'm, I'm Del. He says, I'm going to read this. I don't mean that. I'm fired. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's all right. He's okay. Uh, Chris apparently uh, is a published poet. And uh, so therefore he says, the other issue I would like to take, uh, you've already answered the previous one, uh, is um, something I'm assuming I'm just reading all of it. He says that uh, it's apparently written according to Victorian or early, even early 20th century British verse conventions. I know because I'm a published poet myself. So the poet of 1888 to 1889, any writer of that time, or even a drug-addicted cotton broker, would write in the manner of verse uh, writing of his day, i.e. punctuate, rhyme throughout, and capitalize the beginning letters. So recently, the British poets, influenced by the innovations of beat poets, and other poets such as E.E. E. Cummings, 
have stopped punctuating uh, the system capitalization and uh, beginning letters on each line and dropping the rhyming. In other words, it's saying that the rhyming isn't, or the poetic conventions of the, of the diary do not fit with the conventions of the time. Yeah, well, we have a problem here because the punctuation and spelling of the diary doesn't fit with any convention, does it? There isn't punctuation in the speaking of. It's even worse than mine. Um, it's Martin Fido's point, isn't it, that it contains so many solecisms? Yes. A man, um, a man like Maybrick would not make those elementary spelling errors. It's Martin's point. Is there any uh, theory of why, and a lot of people, I mean, I'm asking this question on behalf of a lot of people here, that the, the diary seems to be written in a consistent hand as in one sitting. Oh, I don't agree with that. It doesn't uh, at all, Andy. Uh, Shirley, I've, I've written time and time again, I keep my own diary, you said that you yes. keep your own jottings. Yes. My yes. handwriting changes by the mood and the entry that I'm actually yeah, me too. putting into the diary. The diary does tend to have a consistency of handwriting. But if you're right. sensitive to the emotional flow of that diary, that but, changes there are so many Yes, but you've, you've It's interesting, Andy, because Pam, sitting by you, is Pam, actually I think disagrees with that. I read, I was reading your book, and I think your response to the diary is actually different to what Andy, dressed like a wasp, is saying. <laughs> I think, see what's interesting, in the brief time that I have actually, in the brief time that I actually had, had to look at it, is that there isn't the consistency. Not looking at it from a handwriting expert, but looking at it from a topology point of view, there are extreme differences. Uh, it's, uh, there are several places where he tries out uh, uh, some of the words and tries out almost the emotion. Uh, the uh, one of the the things well known by apologists is that under the influence of drugs, the writing can change, and changes in uh, as I say, I do stress in the very brief time time that I have to look at it, are actually. Shirley Harrison at the August 1998 meeting of the Cloak and Dagger Club. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you'll be able to find over 160 roundtable discussions, author interviews, conference presentations, Whitechapel Society meetings, and archive tapes, all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Twitter and Facebook.
by searching for RipperCast. <laughs>